This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. So Caroline, last time on Stuff Mom Never Told You, we talked about couple speak and the intimate ways that we talk to people that we love, whether that's we love them romantically or their best friends or family. But now we're going to talk about our public presentation of those private relationships and specifically what we call our significant others. Business partner. Yes. <laughs> My business partner. No, that's going to come up. Professional boyfriend. Perfect. Well, well, that you, would you, sound like a gigolo. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who's to say? Really? It's true. I mean, that's the thing. For all the language that we have to talk about love, it can be surprisingly hard to find a label that fits unless you are married, in which you're like, oh, well, spouse. Husband, wife, done. Yeah. No, I, uh, my aunt has been with, uh, her boyfriend, question mark, for like 30 years. Um, and I don't know how to refer to him, obviously. Like, when I'm talking to other people, telling them about, I guess, like, he's, he's my uncle, but what's, what do I call him? Well, is there also the age factor of it feeling strange to call a significantly older dude? Boyfriend? Yeah, there is something that feels a little juvenile, a little high school about that. I mean, I still feel comfortable calling my boyfriend a boyfriend. But then again, you know, I feel like I'm 15. Can't even drive yet. I can't. Well, I've had friends my age who are the exact opposite, who already feel too old for boyfriend, girlfriend, and will switch to the partner. Have they been together a long time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always with a serious relationship, but not that long. I'm saying like after like the year or two mark. Okay. Yeah, but no, my boyfriend and I have been together for just a little over a year, and we're still like sailing right along in, in boyfriend, girlfriend land. Yeah, I had, I, I had no issue with uh, boyfriend before I got the old bump. I don't know if it's up or sideways, <laughs> just like in a circle. Uh, to fiance. The thing I like about fiance, though, even though the spellings are different, it's pronounced the same. Is that it's just across the board. Everybody's a fiance. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It's very gender neutral. Yeah. So I feel like that's that's interesting to think about. Although I know some people who hate fiance and think that it's stilted. Really. Mm-hmm. Like it's old fashioned or too fancy or. Yeah, it just sounds weird. Very affected. Mm. Since it's French. Yeah, yeah. Speak American. Speak American. 
Uh, Hence, betrothed. <laughs> right, because that doesn't sound stilted or old-fashioned at all. No. Um, so today on the show, we're going to talk about this question of what to call your bay, basically. Because in terms of us waiting longer than ever before to get married, of us, you know, being perhaps in our 40s, 50s and even 60s with technically boyfriends and girlfriends, if we aren't married, gender fluidity, these two boxes, either or a boyfriend or girlfriend, not really fitting everyone in the same way that they were supposed to so long ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting to consider the language of how we publicly identify ourselves as a unit. Yeah, before the 20th century, the terms boyfriend and girlfriend had slightly different meanings than what we think of now. For instance, there was an 1850 publication that describes a boyfriend, two words, lending books to his pal. So that was purely like, you are my male friend. Yeah, just a platonic friend. Yeah, you're just a guy. You're just a guy that I'm friends with. And uh, according to Jan Freeman, who was writing in the Boston Globe, there's an 1870 history that quotes a letter sent by a young Richard Henry Lee to his boyfriend, George Washington. But that's hyphenated boyfriend. Ooh, hyphenated. Ooh. Uh, issues of punctuation. Well, that's a bit. Well, it's a big difference between a boyfriend and a boyfriend. Yeah. Well, we're getting closer to it becoming one word. Yeah, yeah. So in 1892, girlfriend takes a turn for the romantic. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, we have one F.J. Furnival, who wrote a book dedicated that year to, quote, the memory of Tina Rockfort Smith, my much respected and deeply regretted girlfriend. And he doesn't mean deeply regretted and that it was a terrible relationship. Yeah, no, Tina died. Yeah, Furnival left his wife for Tina, who was apparently a Shakespearean scholar. Hey, Tina. Uh, she died by setting her petticoats on fire. Oh, Tina, Tina, Tina. I'm just imagining Tina from Bob's Burgers, <laughs> even though this Tina is spelled with two E's. Um, but it is around the turn of the century that both boyfriend and girlfriend take on the more romantic meaning. But side note, it is interesting to note that platonic girlfriend sticks around in our vernacular. We still refer to our platonic girlfriends, but I'm hard-pressed to find a straight dude, at least, or any dude, really. I don't know of any guy who refers to his boyfriends who aren't boyfriends that he's sleeping with. No, the only... I don't know that I've ever heard it. The only instance I can even imagine would be some guy trying to be funny or ironic because he's uncomfortable with that idea. But yeah, my mom, I, you know, my mom still refers to her best friend as her, gr- her girlfriend all the time. And to me as a child, like a young child being very literal minded, I was always a little bit confused. I, I didn't ever think my mother was a lesbian, but I was always very confused at her use of the word girlfriend because to my child brain, I was like, well, no, that means somebody that you're dating. And so I was always confused. Like, why do you call her your girlfriend? Your voice was so quavering as a child. (laughs) I was nervous about everything. Well, even with the platonic boyfriend, you're far likelier for anyone to more jokingly say, oh, his man friend. Yeah, which is, I mean, how I have jokingly referred to my boyfriend before. My man friend. My gentleman caller. 
a gentleman caller. Uh, that's very FJ Furnival of you. Yeah, I just hope my petticoats don't get set on fire. Yeah, watch out. Um, as we move, though, into the 20th century with the automobile and mm. teenage culture happening like never before, literally like never before, after World War II, we really see boyfriend-girlfriend Get set in stone. Um, for instance, in uh, 1922, Emily Post's new etiquette answers a question about seating arrangements when a girl picks up her boyfriend one word and girlfriend two words. And I think the boy is supposed to sit in the middle so he can... No. No? The boy was supposed to sit on the outside, the passenger seat, so that he could turn and speak with both ladies. Oh. Both the girlfriend and the girlfriend. So that he would never be turning away from yeah, the girlfriend, right, one so, word. So as not to exclude the, the female friend. Oh, how nice. How Avoiding nice. being the third wheel. <laughs> Thanks, Emily Post. Um, but if we look at its usage, at least in literature... It also skyrockets in the 1960s. Again, not surprising. We have this major revival of teen culture and pop music, seeing about hand-holding and girlfriends and boyfriends. <laughs> um, and you can see this plotted out in uh, Google Ngram of just in the 60s. Everybody's well, boyfriending, girlfriending. Well, yeah, not just teen culture, but I would also think that starting in the 60s and then moving into the 70s and 80s, you would start to see more people living together or or just being in romantic relationships with each other and they're not married. Right. There's that longer period between being your parents' child and being someone's spouse. So did we miss an opportunity then, like in the 60s, to we, because we were around, uh, to come up with a different and better name for our significant others than girlfriend and boyfriend? Uh, no, because, you know, if it were in the 60s, it would be something real groovy and awful. Probably, <laughs> probably it would probably be like your uh, something mate. I bet, yeah. like your. Uh, <laughs> I'm just picturing the SNL skits with Will Ferrell and Rachel Dratch in the hot tub. Lover, lover. <laughs> uh, but speaking though of the '80s and people living together, living in sin, this was when. The Census Bureau discovered that uh, enough straight folks, at least, because, again, this is the 80s, so the the very heteronormative 80s, uh, they identified enough straight people in the United States living together as unmarried couples that they decide they need to begin counting them. Um, But they can't label them boyfriends and girlfriends, so it comes up with its own special acronym, which is the most romantic acronym that a couple could imagine. (laughs) Apostle Q. <laughs> what in the heck? Apostle Q. Persons of opposite sexes sharing living quarters. Oh, if that's not sexy, I don't know what is. All I'm saying is the Census Bureau missed an opportunity to make some major cheddar off of some Valentines. Will you be my Apostle Q? Oh. Yeah. That's a good idea for us for February, Kristen. We could come up with our own sminty Valentine. Hubba hubba. <laughs> Although, I mean, again, though, it's very heteronormative. Persons of opposite sexes sharing living quarters. So you could be a Postle Q, or it could, you could still be a Postle Q. It would just be a Postle Q with, with an extra S in there. Yeah. Person of the same sex sharing living quarters. Postle Q. Postle Q. There's still a pos in there. Person of. Oh, yeah, person of. Same sex. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So thanks, Census Bureau. I want to know how much, uh, 
I do love imagining, though, the the meetings, the brainstorming meetings around that acronym. You know, someone at the chalkboard and, you know, some 80s fabulous clothes, really trying to figure out, like, what do we call these people? And then you have a young, dynamic person with shoulder pads who sees the acronym and yells out, we'll call it Possil Q. And and she was a secretary. She was just like in for the day, you know, yeah. serving things. And like, awesome idea, Brad. And then she this is actually it's actually the plot of the sequel to Working Girl. Yeah, Working Girl colon Puzzle Cues. <laughs> <laughs> well, fast forward out of the eighties. Unfortunately, I mean, we could just stay in the eighties. Uh, do today, and we have the average age of marriage in the U.S. up to twenty seven for women. And 29 for men. In other words, we're waiting longer than ever to get married. If we get married, we did a whole week-long exploration on people who are single by choice or just not interested in, even if they're in a couple, just not interested in making it legal. You mean, 44% of all Americans over 18 aren't married. And you also have more unmarried couples than ever before having kids. Yeah, so it's no surprise that we're having conversations about what do you, what do I call this person that doesn't sound like we're in high school? Yeah, because that was something that a, a follower on Twitter noted how strange it is to call his long-term girlfriend, technically, his girlfriend, because they also just had a kid together. It's like, she's so much more than a girlfriend to me, but she's not my wife, technically. Number one gal. Number one gal. Um, but unscientific observation, Caroline, when researching on uh, Too Old for Boyfriend and Google just to like see what people were saying about it, if you search that, all the Google results focus on what to call dudes you're dating who seem way too old to call boy. Mm-hmm. So your man friend, for instance. But if you start looking up Too Old for Girlfriend, most of the Google results are about guys wondering whether they're too old to go for a hot young girlfriend. And I don't exactly know what that means other than that uh, society ages men and women in very different ways. They do. Or or people definitely internalize those social messages differently in terms of what's acceptable. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like not many guys are concerned about being too old to be called boyfriend. Seems like... Or, more... too, or too old to call their significant other girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. But women, straight women in this context are seem more invested in it. But moving out of my my just mental Google queries, uh, the New York Times style guide says that boyfriend, girlfriend are, quote, informal and best reserved for teenagers. But it doesn't offer any substitute. Just like a whiny person on the team. Springing your problems around, but not offering a solution. Thanks a lot, Obama. <laughs> no, thanks a lot, Oprah. What does she call Stedman? Oh, whatever she wants. Yeah, I wonder if she just... I just... Maybe she just says Stedman. Yeah. You're my Stedman. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you're my is steady. there a label necessary? I mean, if you're Oprah... You're my steady man, Stedman. <laughs> hey, steady man. Or Studman. So oh, like, hello. Stud Muffin. Mm. And so it is, though, this uncertainty, not with Oprah, but with what to call your significant other, that the New York Times ended up devoting an entire style section piece to what unmarried, long-term, sometimes with kids, couples, call each other. And one that I 
hated. I'm so sorry if you were listening by chance to this episode, individuals who use this term. Um, but one woman said she uses the term fuzzbend for fake or future husband. Yeah. And plus, there's another F word that could make that entirely controversial. Yeah, fuzzbend, not my favorite either. Uh, some other people they talked to in that article refer to their partners as mi hombre or just baby daddy. But I feel like a lot of these are almost like they're pet names for each other. Yeah, that's it's what not, it felt like. It's not like they're going to walk into a fancy cocktail party and be like, and Jim here is my baby daddy. <laughs> Although, if she does that or he does that, I'd high five it. I don't Why know. Not? That sounds like a really like yuppie white thing to do. Yeah, that's true. Oh, my baby's daddy. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> um, but I mean, this is the, the pickle though, where it's, you're not technically a fiance, spouse, husband, wife, all of which are so linguistically simple when you think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I've taken all of these terms for granted until researching this because there's that universal understanding of what all of those words mean. And when we're in more of this like relationship gray area, as many of us are in these days, we have to develop our own terms. And sometimes they get ridiculous, like fuzzbend. And Carmen Fott, who's a linguist at Pitzer College, thinks that there's a reason why these terms get so ridiculous. Yeah, it's because we're uncomfortable still, no matter what the percentages from the Census Bureau say, we're uncomfortable with the idea of unmarried people living together, having children together, doing the it's together, and not being married. What's the it's, Caroline? You'll you'll learn one day. Ooh. Yeah, it's just the whole thing of using humor to soften or deflect social deviance, which... The, the thing is, not being married these days really isn't that socially deviant, but there's still that puritanical part of our culture that considers it not entirely appropriate. Well, there's that, but there's also the self-consciousness that comes along with the fact that we don't have a good across-the-board word. So even if you're, you've been with your, let's just say partner, even if you've been with your partner for 25 years, there's still kind of a self-conscious thing of like, well, this isn't my husband slash wife. Like, what are you going to think about it? Like, I'm fine with our uh, situation. But it kind of having to introduce a person in public sort of throws into stark relief. Like, oh, well, I don't want to call you boyfriend because, we, you know, whatever, we're 65. But I don't know. Maybe sweetheart. Well, sweetheart. I wonder, too, if that self-consciousness also comes from the implications of Commitment or a lack of commitment, because yeah. if someone is your spouse, you're like, oh, those two people are in it to win it for the long haul or until divorce happens. But boyfriend, girlfriend implies a casual nature to it, which obviously is not the case for someone like your aunt, who has been a girlfriend for many, many, many years. Yeah. Well, there's also the idea that they talked about in this article. I don't know if it was Carmen Fott who brought it up, but the idea of slowing down the whole adapting to convention process. So like getting married, like legally being married and then therefore referring to someone as your spouse or your husband or your wife. Um, even if you have a very unconventional relationship, that's still sort of buying into a degree of convention. And so some of the people in this article were discussing the fact that not a not getting married and b referring to them as something other than a partner or a spouse or a husband is a way of sort of bucking that convention. 
Yeah, and, and if you are into bucking that convention, uh, Kat Stoffel at The Cut provided a handy guide for figuring out the best non-boyfriend-girlfriend title for your coupling. And that's boyfriend-girlfriend, like, interchangeable. If it's boyfriend-boyfriend, girlfriend-girlfriend, you know what I mean. Um, so uh, some of them that I, that I wanted to highlight, there's Other Half, which she says is good for codependent <laughs> people. <laughs> there's also Help Meat, which sounds like something you put on the grill. Or it just reminds me of mince meat. Yeah, Help Meat. Uh, Sweet meat. <laughs> <Ew>. Brains. <laughs> um, but she says it's good for Adam and Eve and people who are supposed to be submissive, since it is that biblical term. Although I kind of like Help Meat. You know, when I'm loading the dishwasher, <laughs> I'd like a Help Meat, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before, that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and clean up easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a lot different than most. We're staying at home for the most part, and many events we usually look forward to are canceled. We find ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players ages 10 and up, although many younger kids can play with initial adult guidance. It's a great way to keep families engaged and off screens, even if it is just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. Unlike the roll your dice, move your mice games, this is a little different. What are your experiences? The first time I played Catan was at our office game night, and it was so fun. It was quick to pick up. It was easy. It was social. We made it really competitive because we're a competitive group, but you don't have to. And what I thought was just going to be a, a short game among friends turned into an epic game night that we shall remember forever. <laughs> hours we played, hours. And uh, yes, I lost, but I had fun. You had fun. <laughs> well, obviously, it keeps you really social. And like you said, it is really easy to pick up, which is really nice right now. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise yeah she also lists the term bow uh which by the way the oxford english dictionary uh, suggests may have uh given rise to the term boo i don't mind bow to be honest no i don't mind it either but she says that that's good for parents who are trying not to embarrass their recently sexually active children and i thought about it and i was like yeah, I can absolutely see parents being like, oh, how's your bow? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, parents ruin everything. Parents just don't understand. And then on a side note, can we just mention the the pre-boyfriend, girlfriend, semi-awkward label of the guy, girl, whomever that I'm seeing? Mm-hmm. It's like you don't, you're in the phase before 
that person even gets a label. But in saying that I'm seeing this person, that's also coded, too. Yeah, it's coded. It's also awkward and has that whole self-conscious thing that we just talked about. I, When my boyfriend and I first started dating, we realized very early on that we were really good together and that we had something special. Um, but he was very much more, I don't want to say eager because that, that gives it the wrong tone, but he was very much more like, you're you're my girlfriend. Like let's let's be honest. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yeah, yeah. We let's just call it what it is. You're my girlfriend. And so we had about like a two week period where uh, anytime we referred to that topic, I would be like, well, no, because I'm only like sixty seven percent your girlfriend. So I don't know that we ever even had a period where we were people that were seeing each other you know we were dating but even in that dating period it was like well no i think i'm like 85 percent your girlfriend and he would do something and i'm like oh negative seven your girlfriend so there was a lot of a lot of playfulness around the terms boyfriend and girlfriend you're never just seeing each other yeah <laughs> biblically speaking he wasn't your casual help me <laughs> <laughs> still that just sounds it just sounds meaty now at this point some listeners might be thinking uh chris and caroline duh partner just use Partner. Well, it's gender neutral. It doesn't imply marriage, but there's also the implication of commitment in it. Yes and no. Yes. Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, there's some kind of commitment, not necessarily romantic commitment. Perhaps you're opening a grocery store together. Yes. I mean, (laughs) some people complain that it it does feel very clinical Mm -hmm. and yes, professional. Um, Also, unscientific observation number two, women who refer to their partners are often assumed lesbian, whether they are or not, while men who refer to their partners are often thought to be referring to business partners. True. And again, all of this is just reflective of how society uh, views men and women differently. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. No, I have thought, well, someone who I knew what her business was, so I knew she wasn't referring to a business partner. She did mention a partner one time, and I did automatically assume she meant her lesbian life partner. But no, she's married to a man. So she was just calling him partner. And I was confused. And that's that's my own brain. There you have it. Well, pre-gay marriage legalization, there was the use of partner by straight folks almost as a sign of solidarity. Yeah. You know, of let's just... Let's make it equal across the board. Everyone can be each other's partners. There should be nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I I feel like I remember Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt doing this. Yeah. Before they got married. Yeah, I mean, it's not only gender neutral, it is sexual orientation neutral as well. But (laughs) not all LGBT people are like, yeah, partner, it's our special term and we love it. Uh, For instance, Brett Burke who's 43, well, who was 43 at the time when the New York Times interviewed him, had been with his boyfriend for 23 years, and he said that, quote, partner is disgusting, mm. but he says it's boyfriend, which he and his boyfriend use, um, is also challenging sometimes because it makes people assume that he and his 23-year-long relationship person haven't been dating long at all. Like, it it implies that it's a new relationship. Well, yeah, but now that same-sex couples can get married, there are questions that (laughs) apparently a bunch of straight people have about, like, what do you call each other? And Washington Post columnist Stephen Petro actually did a great job of tackling this question, because I believe it was not just 
why can't you just call each other partner? But it was, I think the person was asking, like, if two women or two men get married, who's the wife and who's the husband? Which is like, you know, my head is just on the desk, head desk. Uh, And he, he handled it with grace. And he just said, well... First of all, he said, please don't ever ask a same-sex couple who's the husband and who's the wife. That's really demeaning. But he went on to explain, like, yeah, people can call whoever you want. Call them your partner if you want, if that's what you choose to do. But we have earned the right to refer to our legal spouses as husband and wife. That's a term. Those are terms that have been around forever. They've been in use forever, and they have meaning. You can't just divorce them of meaning. Well, they're very privileged terms, you know, that that were exclusive to specific groups of people. So it makes sense that, yeah, I mean, someone is your husband, your wife, that, like you said, I mean, that has a universal significance to it that that partner can have. I mean, I think it's up to every couple, obviously, to determine what label fits them best. But by the same token, I don't think that a part that partner is a one size fits all either. Sure. Now, what I was fascinated to learn in all of this, Caroline, was that before partner came around, significant other predated it as the gender neutral, unmarried couple, universal, one size fits all attempted term. But it didn't originate specifically to refer to a boyfriend or husband or whatever, right? Correct. Yeah, in a 1998 column, William Sapphire explains that the term significant other originated in psychotherapy. Uh, Psychiatrist Harry Stack Sullivan defined personality as a relatively enduring pattern of recurrent interpersonal situations, especially involving relationships with, quote, significant others. And that could be friends, family, or really anyone else who helps shapes those norms and behaviors that make up your personality. And at the time, significant other caught on as a more vogue reference to live-ins, live-togethers, and the super vague roommates Mm. that people were using, because this was a new landscape. Again, like, I mean, Sapphire was writing this in 1998, um, and premarital cohabitation still wasn't nearly as common as it is today. So we're grappling for what to call call our apostle cues, essentially. Um, but significant other also is a little bit clunky. Yeah, that's another one of those terms that I I use with a wink. You know, like, yes, technically my boyfriend is my significant other, like in the way that we use that term today. But I'm not going to be like, hello, Kristen, meet my significant other. It does just kind of sound a little, like you said, clunky and a little dusty. Yeah, like your significant other what? (laughs) (laughs) But I do like uh, how Sapphire prefers sweetheart Mm -hmm. because, quote, it doesn't draw leers and we could all use a little romanticism in describing romances that exist without benefit of clergy. I like that, too. And so in our last episode, Kristen and I mentioned use of the word sweetheart and how it can be one of those toxic uh, pet names that like, listen, sweetheart, or, you know, something that's not as as positive and romantic. But I do like it in terms of this is my sweetheart. I think that's very cute. And it's very 50s. And not that I want to be all retrograde, but I think it's cute. Well, I got to tell you, Caroline, I would opt for Bay over sweetheart. Yeah, and do you? I'm a fan of Bay. I use Babe and <laughs> Boo more often with my fiance, but that's just between us. I don't introduce him as my Boo. 
Well, <laughs> sometimes casually, I will. Um, but, but I like this idea of Bay, B-A-E, as <laughs> perhaps the gender-neutral, unmarried couple commitment specifying term that we've all been waiting for. It's just been in African-American vernacular English, just just waiting to permeate the culture as it has now. Sometimes much to the chagrin of, of people who are like, you were using this so wrong. Um, but what do you think about Bay? I, I still don't think that that will replace boyfriend. I mean, maybe it will. Who knows? But I, I still, it's still just like to me, like babe, which is basically what it's a shortened version of babe or baby. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still not going to introduce my boyfriend as, Hey, Kristen, this is my babe. Cause you'd be like, Oh, what? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't mean to put judgments in your mouth. I do think, though, that it's way more common and totally acceptable for people to introduce their significant other as Bay on social media. And don't we know that social media and relationship statuses are everything now? Yeah. Well, so does that that just means to me that Bay is about to be over? Uh, maybe. I don't think so. I think Bay is here to stay. Oh. I think. Bay overtook Boo, obviously, and it's here to stay, even though it's to the point to where everything can be Bay. Yeah, it can be used as like every part of speech. Yeah. Like something is Bay, you are Bay, they are Bay. I kind of love that, though. <laughs> I really love how interchangeable it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's it's definitely we've reached peak Bay, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that means that that Bay is going to go anywhere. Also, because it's been around for quite a, a while. Well, yeah, it's been around for like a decade, but I I do think that the fact that it's everywhere on social media, I just wonder, like, surely if we are at peak Bay, that we've, we're going to reach a tipping point, and then what does that mean for who still uses it? Eventually, we'll, okay, so we'll hit the tipping point. It won't be cool to say anymore. It'll mean that you're out of touch. You're probably a 50-year-old white man using it. Um, but then give it another couple of years, and it'll come back around. Yeah, if my dad, if I ever hear my dad saying, my daughter, Kristen, is so bae, I would actually love it. I was about to say that'd be ridiculous, but I'd I'd be down with that. I mean, in terms of... who. When we've reached peak bay and it and it dies, it just means that white people will stop saying that. I mean, that's also what we're saying yeah. in all of this. It's like we've like grabbed it and tried to like make it our own, and we loved it to death, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, but aside from bay, there are lots of gender neutral options because boyfriend girlfriend can be unfitting for those who. Age factor aside, marriage stuff aside, let's talk about people who are not so down with binaries who want a term that fits their gender identity in a more comfortable manner, because that's also important, too. Sure. Yeah, we pulled some examples from Everyday Feminism and nonbinary.org, and they include Goyfriend, Fayfriend, and Datemate, which that just makes me think, honestly, Kristen, of a past episode we did about P-mates. Oh. So I can't, I wouldn't be able to use date mate, but I don't know, maybe date mate and help meet could be kind of the same thing. You've got date meat. <laughs> date Ew. meat sounds like something you would bring to a picnic date <laughs> or enjoy on a date. Uh, hubba hubba. Well, and then Faye friend, since Faye is F-E-Y, 
it does make me think of a special term I can use when Tina Fey is actually my friend. Oh, yay. Fey friend. Fey friend. Hey, She's Fey my Fey friend. Um, I also like the very basic companion, um, which nonbinary.org notes is a neutral reference to Doctor Who's companions or Firefly's companions. And that's a sweet thing, too. My companion. That's mm. nice. That implies, like, commitment and... Uh, intimacy. But I mean, the word companion is nothing new. It's a word you've often heard for, for decades and decades for, for a lesbian couple or a gay male couple. Back in the days when their relationship had to be closeted. Yeah. So the, the whole euphemistic com- companion. Yeah. And I mean, I can say that coming from a newspaper background, reading lots of obituaries, you know, editing obituaries and things like that, you would often see companion. And, and it's, it's, not used with a wink. It's absolutely meant as a respectful term for like, well, we don't really know what to call them because that's the day and age we live in. Yeah. I mean, but there is still something, there is something sweet for sure about companion. Um, Stuff I never told you listeners also have lots of ideas about what to call your significant others. I'm just now defaulting to significant other. I'm realizing as I'm talking on this podcast, Caroline Sminty fan, Catherine, for instance, let us know, via Facebook, that she said, uh, it took me until last year to figure out that my preferred term is spouse. At least in Canada, after two years of living together, we're considered common-law spouses. So it made sense. It had the right amount of grown-up without being too clinical or mushy. Just when I figured out this perfect alternative to calling him my boyfriend, he became my fiancé. Not that I'm complaining. Yeah, and Agnes says, in my language, we use charista, which means dearest, but it doesn't sound that goofy, uh, for boyfriend and girlfriend, no matter what age they are, and samboyed, which means co-liver. She says it's useful and age and gender neutral. I kind of love that. Yeah. How do you say the dearest again? Charista. Charista. Or charista. One of the two. That's really sweet. Also, co-liver. I'll take co-liver, too. Will you be my co-liver? Aww. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there, and we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight a service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help. You can talk with your counselors in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. And BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas. They can give you access to help that might not be available in your area. And you just have to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with a counselor in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is an affordable option, and our listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code MOMSTUFF. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash MOMSTUFF. That's BetterHelp.com slash MOMSTUFF. Talk to a therapist online and get help. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out. Which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show 
who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends. Um, Allie said, if I ever end up with someone, I might say they're my cuteness. And in return, I shall be their cuteness. Well, I like that. But that's that's also kind of a pet name. Yeah. And uh, Amy said, there's a whole new word needed. How about protagonist? And I was like, wait, did I read that wrong? No, protagonist. She says proto, meaning first or most important, and gamist, meaning married to or mating with. She says it's gender neutral, adult sounding, and most importantly, in my mind, grammatically correct. I'm Amy, and this is my protagonist, and I'm his or her protagonist. And then Sam suggested life mate and paramour. As good terms as well. And <laughs> Paramore is pretty fancy. Paramore is very fancy. Again, French, making people feel like it's stuffy. Isn't there that band, Paramore? Mm-hmm. There is that band, Paramore. Uh, it also, for me, Paramore is like the more chaste version of lover. Yeah. Lover, which is so creepy. Uh, it kind of makes my skin crawl uh, to refer to use lover in that way. And right. the paramour, I, to me, to my ears, just sounds like a little bit more of a fancy chased version of that. I feel like you can't introduce someone as your lover if you are not at that point touching them like with both <laughs> both hands <laughs> on as much of their physical real estate is, as possible. This is my lover. I feel like that's only either used ironically to be funny and to try to make your friends uncomfortable or your significant other uncomfortable. <laughs> or your parents. Or it's used by like some new agey person in Santa Fe. Well, listeners, now we want to know what your couple labels are. Do you just stick with a boyfriend, girlfriend, or have you found those terms to not exactly fit your relationship or just you, who you are in love. Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a Facebook message here from Josie about our waitressing episode. She said, as someone who's worked in the service industry for eight plus years, I really enjoyed listening to your episode on waitressing. Most of my employment as a waitress, I worked at a little old place called Denny's, where I worked four to ten hour shifts, four to five days a week, but never over 40 hours. Sure, on the weekends, I would make 12 to 15 bucks an hour at night, but during the slow times in the day, I would most likely be sent home after four to six hours, only making $5 an hour. And this includes that $2.13 an hour. Until your episode, I'd never heard of a union for servers and seriously wish they were still around today. I always thought it was unfair that I wasn't expected to work for tips, but often required to take time away from serving in deep, clean work areas when it was slow enough. This meant that I was being paid only the two thirteen an hour for work that in any other job would pay minimum wage or more. We were also asked many times to train other waitresses without clocking over to training, which would have paid us around $5 an hour plus tips. Our incentive given was that we could keep the tips the waitress in training received, and if we refused to do it without switching over, they just had someone else do it. I know a union would have been able to prevent this. Now, as for sexual harassment, I can tell you it happened daily. When I turned 18, a regular customer that I'd always liked and thought of as grandfatherly suddenly started to tell me how he liked how I swayed my hips when I walked away from his table. 
All this and more led me to wear baggy clothing and minimal makeup to work, which I felt did hinder the amount of tips I made, but people were less likely to make comments to my face. Luckily, I started to work at a different restaurant where people did focus more on the quality of service rather than my looks and eventually outside of the service industry completely. But I've always thought of it as a valuable skill set and could get a job as a waitress again if I ever lost my current job. I've always thought everyone should work as a server at least once to get a good idea of what it's like on the other side of the table. Maybe it would teach people to tip better. Thank you for the episode and all the great things you two do. I can't tell you how many times I've recommended your podcast to friends and family. So thank you, Josie. Yeah, I had this episode in mind last night when I was at a bar with some friends and was tipping generously, uh, more, much more than 20% because I was thinking back to some of the comments that we received on Facebook that were against the idea of tipping in general or tipping to help servers out who don't make a living wage. Um, I have a letter here from Lou Jean. She says, Hi, CNC. I was just sinking into a hot bath after a long day and hit play on your podcast about waitresses. I almost couldn't wait until I dried off to write you about my experiences in seven years of waiting tables in the college town of Logan, Utah. Go Aggies. First, the issue of semantics. My experience with the great waitress-server debate has been that it all depends on the establishment. Not just the environment, but the actual age of the business. I've worked in a local Chinese restaurant and a bar that were both about 30-year-old businesses, and in both, I was most decidedly a waitress. However, in any restaurant established within the last 10 years, I've always been referred to as a server. Personally, I prefer the term waitress. I agree that the term server is a little too close for comfort to servant. I'd also like to share my experience in my current job as a waitress in said 30-year-old bar. Until six months ago, my workplace was completely gender segregated. Men were cooks and then were promoted to bartenders, but women could only ever be waitresses. I always found this to be so incredibly discriminatory. I thought for a few weeks that it had to just be a fluke or that somehow the other ladies I work with simply didn't want to be bartenders. I quickly realized this was not the case. Not only was the division discriminatory, but bartenders were paid $3.75 per hour while the waitresses made $2.30, and we were also required to tip the bartender 20% of our tips at the end of each shift. Gender discrimination is alive and well in the service industry. Thanks to a change to a somewhat more enlightened management staff, a few of us ladies now bartend occasionally, but very rarely have shifts with other waitresses who would be required to tip us out. Still, to this day, we have no male waiters. I do feel the need to point out that this arrangement inspires no animosity between waitresses and bartenders. Overall, the men I work with are extremely supportive and vigilant about harassment in the bar. Anytime a belligerent patron harasses a waitress or a female customer, the bartender is the first to show them to the door. Thanks for the amazing podcast, ladies, and thank you for shedding light on my oft-disregarded and degraded profession. Whenever someone says serving is not a real job, I simply wipe away my tears with the crisp, large denomination bills I bring home each night. So thank you for your letter. And thanks to everybody who's written to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources, so you can learn more about boyfriends and girlfriends, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, 
at the persistence of systemic racism, you're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dear Young Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.